When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Three, two, one. When I'm working out, I love to listen to your podcast. Whenever you say something, other people react to it. Taking my breath away, Aaron. Fern Lundquist joins me. Hall of Famer, Jim Calhoun. NASCAR icon, Dale Earnhardt Jr. Kirk Herbstreet is on the phone. Here we Podcast in Swimming America, the Air Tour Sports Podcast. It is Wednesday, January 27th, 2020. People, I hope everybody is having a great week. Uh, and for the second episode in a row, very briefly, I do apologize off the top about the sound quality. I am recording through Zoom. I am hoping to have new equipment in on Wednesday night so that by Thursday's episode, I will sound like a total professional again. And I do appreciate many of you, by the way, reaching out and saying, dude, Torres. You're giving us a free podcast. We can't complain about the sound quality, but I'm a bit of a perfectionist and, uh, you know, I want the sound quality to sound great. A little disappointed that this is what we have to do, but I'm grateful to still be able to do this show. So with that said, here is what we can expect on Wednesday's Aaron Torres Sports Podcast. I will lead with probably the single biggest result from the college basketball night on Tuesday. Kentucky falls at Alabama. Uh, Kentucky was starting to build a little bit more, a little bit of momentum off of that LSU win. Everybody thinks maybe they've turned a corner. Can they go to Alabama, upset the best team in the SEC? And the answer is no. We'll talk about that game, what it means for Kentucky, uh, and why I really kind of at this point have lost hope that at any point this season will be turned around or salvaged. It's just the truth. I'm not trying to be Debbie Downer. We will transition very briefly into the ACC. I think I've kind of neglected that league because I think it's been hard to kind of figure out, okay, who's good and who isn't. We'll talk about Virginia, who picked up a nice win over uh, Syracuse on Monday. We'll talk about North Carolina, who's turning a corner. And I will give a little credit to a team that I know all of you hate me acknowledging. That's the Arizona Wildcats. They swept Arizona State over recent days. And I do think they deserve a little bit of acknowledgement. Finally, we will wrap on what I think is kind of an interesting football story. I know there's not a ton of college football at this point outside of Tennessee, but Alabama hiring two former NFL assistant or former two former NFL head coaches as assistant coaches for next season. I think it's one of the most underappreciated stories in sports right now, and it just proves Nick Saban really is playing chess when everybody else is playing checkers. By the way, uh, stay tuned in the coming weeks. We got some really good guests. I don't want to spoil it, but if all goes as planned, I will have an NFL icon, somebody that you will want to listen to on Thursday's episode, so stay tuned for that and hoping for some big guests for next week. Uh, Before we get started on today's episode, though, I want to remind you, as I always do, make sure that you're subscribed to the Aaron Torres Sports Podcast, iTunes, the Podcast Addict app, Podbean, Spotify, TuneIn Radio, wherever you listen to podcasts, make sure that you're subscribed to the Aaron Torres Sports Podcast. 
make sure to rate and review the show. Go ahead and give us a quick five stars. Really do appreciate a few of you who have gone to that iTunes page and left some ratings and reviews. Thank you for that. Uh, I'll read a couple of them here over the coming days because I've got a few good ones. Uh, make sure you're following on social media at Aaron underscore Torres on Twitter at Aaron Torres pod on Instagram. I mentioned it the other day. You should find me on YouTube. A lot of stuff when there's stuff that falls between the cracks that I can't quite get to on this show. Been doing a lot of content on YouTube, so make sure to find me there. Also, Facebook, uh, pretty much anywhere that you're on social media, you can find Aaron Torres and the Aaron Torres podcast. But as always, I appreciate your support. Another great month for the show. Uh, we have not dropped off at all from football to basketball. We're picking up steam heading towards March. Like I said, some good guests coming. So I appreciate everything that you guys do for this show. And as I said, hopefully on Thursday's episode, we will have uh, better sound quality. That will be coming as well. But with that said, people, there is no more time to waste. Let's get into the topic of the night which was the Kentucky-Alabama game. And it was important, I thought, weirdly for both teams. Kentucky, of course, was coming off a big home win over LSU. You're kind of wondering, can they build a little bit of momentum? I thought for Alabama, this was equally an important game. You're now hitting the second half of the SEC schedule. You're seeing teams for a second time. You're building momentum towards an SEC regular season title. I can't even tell you the last time that's happened in basketball for Alabama. And you can't really have any let-ups. And so it was a fascinating matchup for both teams. And I really thought it was kind of an interesting matchup for Kentucky from one perspective. Because I thought this was a game where they actually could come in and keep things competitive. And I'll tell you why. I was probably the only person in America that watched that Mississippi State-Alabama game on Saturday. But I thought Mississippi State kind of put together the blueprint to beat Alabama or at least keep things competitive. What Mississippi State did was they slowed things down. What Mississippi State did was they got physical. They were tough. They didn't try to beat Alabama in Alabama's game. Mississippi State only took, I believe, 14 three-point attempts uh, in that game. It was 20 fewer than Alabama. And Mississippi State made Alabama basically play their game. And I thought to myself, well, wait a second now. For all of Kentucky's faults, they're pretty – you know, they play hard, they play well, pretty well on defense for the most part, and they have better athletes in Mississippi State. And I thought if they could model what Mississippi State did with their players, they might actually have a chance to win. And that's basically exactly what happened. They held Alabama to 70 points, which is the fewest points they've had in forever. Uh, Alabama only attempted 23-point attempts. They only made six, which is kind of insane when you think about the fact that Less than a week ago, they hit 23 in one game, and Kentucky was right there. They had a chance to win. They had an opportunity to steal a game. They were up five with five minutes to go. They basically stole the Mississippi State blueprint, um, and they couldn't. And it was really funny, really ironic. It's probably not funny to the Kentucky fans listening, but maybe ironic is the right word is that this game followed the blueprint of so many other Kentucky games throughout the course of this season. Um, it was, it was again, maybe not funny, but ironic, but with about six, seven minutes to go, it was a close game. I believe it was a tie game. And I tweeted out, I said, I've seen this Kentucky game played a million times before Kentucky with just about everybody they've played all year. They can keep it competitive for about a half 
into the halfway point of the second half, and then you look like, okay, maybe they're going to make a run here. Maybe they're going to turn a corner. Maybe they're going to win this game. And instead, all of a sudden, a tie game, they have a turnover here, a bad shot there, a defensive lap there, and a tie game turns into a, a seven, eight-point deficit. They end up losing. I saw that happen against Kansas. I saw it happen against North Carolina. I saw it happen against Auburn. And that's essentially what happened with Kentucky. They were up, as I said, uh, uh, as many as five with under, they were, excuse me, they were up with under five minutes to go against the best team in the SEC on the road and couldn't close out as, they, as Alabama went on an 18-5 run to end the game. So what went wrong for Kentucky? Can it be fixed, et cetera? First of all, I think the most obvious thing that went wrong, they just, they just didn't finish around the rim, man. And, like, this is a frustrating thing to watch with Kentucky is, you know, you can talk about this deficiency, that deficiency, point guard play, shooting, this. They missed so many chip shots around the rim. Uh, my buddy Nick Roush from Kentucky Sports Radio, he did a great job charting this stuff. Or I don't know if he did it or he found the chart somewhere. But Kentucky missed 20 layups or essentially points. Kentucky missed 20 shots in the paint. That is simply, that's 40 points right there. If you do nothing else, if you don't shoot threes, if you don't make foul shots, even if you turn the ball over, 20 missed shots in the paint. Even if you make 10 of them, that's 20 more points. You have 20 more points, and you win this game by 9 rather than losing it by 11. So that's, first of all, Kentucky just missed way too many opportunities. But I think the bigger issue, the issue that I know a lot of Kentucky fans are talking about tonight and, and into Wednesday morning, Kentucky just still hasn't figured out their roster and their lineups now past the halfway point of this regular season and almost into February. It's kind of crazy. Um, but I think about John Calipari. John Calipari is a guy that almost to a T, almost to a fault, about January 1 of most seasons, settles on a, a rotation, settles on a lineup, and sticks with it until the end of the season, no matter what happens. Uh, he pretty much does that annually. I mean, last year, by the end of the season, he was basically only playing six, maybe seven guys. If you include, going back to last year, he had the Ashton Hagens, Emmanuel Quickly, um, EJ Montgomery, Nick Richards, Tyrese Maxey, and he basically only played Nate Sestina and maybe Keon Brooks off the bench. It was six, maybe seven guys, yet you're looking at a Kentucky lineup where every single game it's a little bit different. Sometimes Dante Allen's starting, sometimes he's coming off the bench. Sometimes B.J. Boston's starting, sometimes he's coming off the bench. Sometimes you're playing Devin Askew with Davion Mintz, sometimes you're playing them separate. Sometimes one of them's running the point, the other one's off the ball. Sometimes it's vice versa. Sometimes you're, as my buddy Jack Pilgrim always says, you're playing three bigs at the same time. Sometimes you're playing two. And it's just incredible to me that this late into the season, Kentucky still hasn't figured it out. And by the way, I would say, I watch a lot of college basketball. This isn't only a Kentucky thing, but it's exacerbated at Kentucky for two reasons. One, because John Calipari is a guy that is notorious for finding his guys and sticking with them till death do you part till the end of the season. That's one. And then two, it's obviously exacerbated because you're not winning. Fall to five and 10 on the season, four and four in the SEC. Um, but you look at that problem, the inability to identify a couple things, guys you can count on, but then furthermore, guys that play well together, that was exacerbated late in the game. 
where Kentucky, as I've said a few times, you have a lead late in the game, under five minutes to go. You go to a timeout, and Calipari shakes up the lineup. And I know Kentucky fans are frustrated with this. You bring in Devin Askew, you bench Davion Mintz. There's not really any explanation why, but that lineup doesn't get the job done. And all of a sudden, a two-point lead or whatever ends with Alabama going on an 18-5 to run. And so when I look at Kentucky, we'll get into some of their other issues in a minute, but I think at the end of the day, that's their biggest issue. Is Calipari, through 15 games of the season, doesn't have any idea who are the guys that he can count on and who are the guys that can play well together. That's a problem. Like, like you, if you can't figure out those two most basic things this late in the season, you're not going to win a lot of games. Now, some of it is on John Calipari. First of all, it, we're going to talk about it in a minute with Sean Miller because I'm going to give him some credit here, and I know it's going to piss a lot of you off. But with Calipari, part of it is on recruiting, right? We're going to get into the the player personnel and the makeup in a minute. But if you just don't guys, if you just don't have guys that can perform late, that's either your recruiting, that's either what you're doing in practice where guys just can't deliver, or you know it, it's whatever. But part of that is on Calipari. I would say part of it isn't though. And again, it goes back to what I've said from the beginning. Weird year, COVID, this, that. I mean, when you talk about a normal season where John Calipari has his six or seven decided by January 1st, that's 13 or 14 games into the season. Remember, in a normal season, you get 13 out-of-conference games. Well, this year, we're 15 games into the season, so this is the equivalent of the second SEC game, except now we're eight games into SEC play. And so when I look at Kentucky, that's the biggest problem. Now, of course, on top of that, you have other issues, some of which John Calipari addressed in the postgame, some of which John Calipari hasn't. Um, you don't have a guy that can essentially create his own offense. John Calipari said in the postgame, I think he's 100% correct. You hate to criticize kids. I was critical of, uh, of Jerry Stackhouse naming names. Calipari didn't name names, but what he basically said is true. You don't have guys that can create your own offense. No disrespect to Devin Askew, the point guard. He's just not good enough at this point in SEC, to be an SEC point guard. You look at the point guards that Alabama is putting out there, that LSU has, that Tennessee to a degree has, although Tennessee, frankly, kind of has the same problems. You look at Gonzaga. You look at Baylor. They have three, four, five guys on the team that can create their own shots. Kentucky just doesn't have that. Terrence Clark was supposed to be that guy. He's hurt, and I'm using air quotes here in my apartment because who knows what's going on with him. Uh, Brandon Boston was supposed to be that guy, and I think to a degree he kind of has been the last two games, but he's just not efficient enough. The guy's shooting 37% from the field, 17% from three. When that's the guy that you need to create offense and he's only making 40% of his field goal attempts, that's just not going to get the job done. On top of that, there's the other issues that we've talked about. You have not enough three-point shooting. You have too many big guys that can't shoot that aren't versatile, that are basically only good within five feet from the basket. I'll tell you right now, man, I, I swear, I, I hate to say it, but it's true. Kentucky essentially, in, in the modern basketball, you can't play more than one guy at a time that can't shoot and is only good around the rim. I mean, you look at everybody in college basketball now is playing four out one big. Kansas is playing four out one big with David McCormick. West Virginia. How about West Virginia? Bob Huggins, Mr. Rugged, Mr. Tough Guy is playing four and sometimes five guards at the same time. Yet Kentucky has four guys, as best I can tell, that are basically best around the rim. 
Olivier Saar, now he's good 15 to 20 feet out, but do you want him playing that far from the rim? Isaiah Jackson's only good around the rim. He's great defensively, by the way. He was awesome defensively. Single-handedly kept him in the game at certain points with his shot blocking. Um, Lance Ware can only play within four or five feet, and Keon Brooks can only play close to the rim. I know Keon Brooks fashions himself as a guy that can stretch the floor, but he just hasn't shown it consistently enough. And so when I look at Kentucky, these are real problems. Now, in terms of the bigger, bigger, bigger picture about John Calipari, and for the non-Kentucky fan listening, I know some of you are going to be stunned to hear this, but there's a lot of Kentucky fans saying right now, I've had it up to here with John Calipari. Now, I'm not ready to go that far. I still look at John Calipari as a guy that won the SEC last season, a guy that made the Elite Eight the last time there was an NCAA tournament, a guy that, what, the last, what, five NCAA tournaments has made it to at least the second weekend. I'm not ready to say, you know, like, I hear a lot from Kentucky, but the game's passed them by. It's time to move on. It's time to look at our next option. No, let's calm down. This is a weird year, minimal practice, new roster, all that stuff. But what I would also say is I do think, as I've said on previous episodes, the bigger picture issues need to be addressed going forward. You need to figure out this. You need to modernize the offense, right? You need to figure out lineups that work. You need to not recruit four guys that can only play within five feet of the rim. You need to recruit more shooting. You need to recruit or figure out a way to find guards that can create their own offense because that is where basketball is going. And so as I wrap up on Kentucky here, I think that's the bigger picture thing that I take out of this game. This Kentucky thing isn't getting better, guys. I mean, I, I just think that when you look at, at this team, I see a scenario where essentially what we've seen the last two games from Kentucky is essentially what we're going to see the rest of the season going forward. I think with the right matchup on the right game, with the right team that isn't focused or whatever, um, you know, I think Kentucky's going to look awesome like they did against uh, LSU. LSU made a lot of tactical mistakes. I didn't really talk about that game because I didn't think there was that much to take out of it. LSU made the tactical mistake of trying to press Kentucky, which all it did was gave them a bunch of uncontested jumpers and layups and things of that nature. So, yeah, if you catch the right team on the right night, you're going to win. You catch the wrong, the right team on the wrong night, you're going to at best have a scenario like this where you don't play well and you hope you have a chance to win late based on defense and toughness and grit and energy and all that stuff. But when I look at this season with Kentucky, you know, I'm just sitting here saying I, I just don't think it gets better. And I know I've said it a few times. I, I don't want to say I'm kind of over talking about them, but we know what the problems are, and I just don't see them being addressed this year. So, look, there, there are still games ahead, right? And if you still play the way that you did on whatever it was, Tuesday night against, um, you know, against Alabama, the chances are still there for you to make a serious run, right? Calipari said it after the game that he believes they can still make a tur NCAA tournament run without playing successfully in the SEC tournament. I'll say this. It starts the next three games, next five games, really, because you got Texas at home, Missouri, Tennessee, all three are currently ranked. Then you got Arkansas and Auburn. Four of those teams are trending to make the NCAA tournament, including Arkansas. Auburn is playing lights out since Sharif Cooper got there. So the, the, the chances and opportunities are there for Kentucky, but I just I haven't seen enough consistency from literally anybody from the head coach on down to all 13 or 12 or 11 guys on the roster to make me believe that it's going to happen. So that's kind of where I'm at with Kentucky. Um, you know, I think the kids are playing hard. I thought they played really hard on Tuesday night. 
I just don't think that they're, I just don't, I, I just don't think they have the guys. I don't think they have the horses. I don't think they have the right kind of makeup for modern basketball. I do think that they've been hurt by this weird COVID season. And as a final thought on this, I'm not ready to give up on Jack Calipari. He's a Hall of Famer. I get it. I don't believe the game's passed him by. I still think he's got a lot of good years in him. But I think more than ever this year, it's being exposed that, one, he needs good guards to be successful, which is pretty much anybody in college basketball. Um, And, two, he needs a full offseason. He needs the full out-of-conference slate. You can't go from Kansas to, 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 to Georgia Tech to Louisville, to North Carolina, right into SEC play. You need a few more of those Moorhead State, Eastern Kentucky, Western Carolina, whatever games to get ready. But it's been a long season for Kentucky, um, and I don't think it, it gets better anytime soon. Really quickly on Bama, I don't know that there's a ton for me to take out from Alabama. Um, I think, one, it's a totally positive sign when everybody says, oh, you live by the three, you die by the three if you're Alabama. Well, Alabama died by the three tonight, and they still survived, right? They, You know, they're a cat with nine lives because they went 6-4-20 from three in this game, and everyone said if they played that poorly, there was no way they could win, and they did beat Kentucky. Now, part of it was Kentucky's turnovers and all that stuff, and I think even an Alabama fan's kind of scratching their head and saying, we were lucky to get out of that one alive. But when you look at Alabama, um, you know, one, it's a totally positive sign that you survive and win that game. Um, but two, I think the bigger story with Alabama is actually what happened two and a half hours later with their big cross-state rival. And what do I mean by that? Well, Alabama, of course, their big rival is Auburn. Um, and I know Alabama fans are never allowed to root for Auburn and say anything nice to Auburn. But Auburn did them a solid on Tuesday night because Auburn was hosting Missouri and thanks to 28 points, eight rebounds, seven assists from Sharif Cooper, they knocked off Missouri. One, Sharif Cooper's awesome. Speaking of Sharif Cooper, I find it really funny that in this world where everybody tries to tear down college basketball, I'll tell you this, Sharif Cooper in the five or six games that he's played college basketball has made himself a lot of money. Auburn fans don't want to hear it. They think he's coming back next year. I'll tell you this, there's as good of a chance as I play point guard for Auburn next year as Sharif Cooper, but I bring it up because all of a sudden now Auburn is really interesting because of Sharif Cooper, even if they can't make the NCAA tournament, but more importantly, it gave Missouri a third loss in SEC play. Why is that important? And why is it important for Alabama? Well, with that third loss, Missouri now falls into a three-way tie, four-way tie, excuse me, for second place in the SEC. LSU is six and three overall. Tennessee is five and three. Florida is five and three. Missouri is four and three. Why does that matter for Alabama? Well, Alabama's nine and zero. Oh. Alabama now has a three-game lead in the loss column over everybody in the SEC. Alabama sitting at 14-3 overall, 9-0 in conference play, and that matters because guess what? Alabama is now in complete control of the SEC. As I said, they have a three-game lead over everybody in the league. They already have head-to-head tiebreak wins over LSU, Tennessee, and Florida, they have not played Missouri yet, and I will say they do still play LSU a second time, but 
You're talking about a team with a three-game lead, a head-to-head tiebreaker over three of the four teams in second place, and they have the four worst teams in the SEC still on their schedule, Georgia, Texas A&M, and South Carolina, and Vandy. So guess what? Alabama fans don't want to hear it. Alabama fans are afraid of rat poison. Nick Saban talks about rat poison. I'm giving you rat poison, Alabama fans, because I'm telling you right now, it's January 27th. And you just clinched the SEC regular season title. I know you don't want to hear it. I know you're upset. I know you, you, you think I'm just starting drama. You just clinched the SEC title. Barring a catastrophe, you would have to essentially go five and four in your last nine games, which includes four games against the four worst teams in the league to finish outside of winning the SEC title. So it's only January 27th. But I want to congratulate Alabama on winning the SEC title because ain't nobody catching up. Great win for Bama. Great win because it showed that you can win when somebody knocks you off your game. You can win playing a different way. Uh, and it was an important win for Alabama. It was an important win for Bama as they moved to 9-0 and in SEC play. Cannot believe they're sitting there at 14-3 and overall. Uh, really quickly, want to get to a few more college basketball topics. The first one, I'm going to get to Sean Miller in Arizona in a minute because I think they're doing something pretty incredible that deserves to be talked about. But one conference that I do think I've kind of glossed over here uh, over the course of the season is the ACC. And the reason I've glossed over the ACC, I talked a little bit about Louisville and Duke last week, but or last episode, excuse me. But I've kind of glossed over the ACC because it kind of feels like we didn't really know who was good, right? Clemson had a minute where they were kind of interesting. Virginia Tech had a minute where they were kind of interesting. Pitt beat Syracuse twice and Duke. And all of a sudden, uh, you look up, and after kind of not really knowing what the heck was going on in the ACC, the last week or so has really cleared up the ACC championship race and the championship picture. And what do I mean by that? Well, first of all, I would say this. Um, In this league, we are talking about a scenario where there are now, excuse me for the noise in the background, I'm, I'm recording here on my stupid computer, but um, we are now in a scenario where Virginia and Florida State appear to be running away from the rest of the league. Virginia 7-0 and in league play, Florida State 5-1, and and I also want to give a little bit of credit to, to North Carolina as well, because they have quietly won six of their last seven as well. And I think we're starting to see what the ACC is all about. I think Virginia, Florida State are the top two. I think North Carolina, maybe Louisville, maybe Virginia Tech are right there. And then there's a big drop off. Duke, by the way, did win on Wednesday or Tuesday night. They beat Georgia Tech. Uh, weird game. Georgia Tech, man, they should have won on Saturday against Virginia. Probably should have. It was a lot closer than the seven point final score indicated because it was a six point spread. I know a lot of people that lost some money on that game, but let's get to Virginia really quick because everyone who's a longtime listener of this podcast knows I have a little bit of a love hate relationship with Virginia. Uh, When Virginia lost to UMBC a few years ago, I was the guy banging the drum. Virginia can never win the national championship, they can never win at the highest level um playing the way that they do right because we're, we're going to spend the next few months talking about can Gonzaga win it all playing the way that they do with the schedule that they do do they play enough defense we'll talk about uh you know Iowa do they play enough defense to win it but Virginia was the exact opposite for years the defense was elite but the offense just simply wasn't good enough and so when they lost to UMBC Um, I remember coming on the podcast. I had just started the podcast, but I remember talking to a prominent 
um, college basketball coach who had won national championships, um, you know, not necessarily as the head coach, but had been involved with championship winning programs. And he told me, dude, they're never going to win a national championship playing the way that they do. Well, fast forward a year, and you know who became the biggest Tony Bennett guy on the planet? Your boy Torres, because they figured out the offense and they figured out how to be able to score and score enough points to win, even when their defense was giving up more points. And so why do I bring it up with Virginia? It's because last year they were in a little bit of a rebuild post-national championship, but this year, I'm just telling you, they are all of a sudden 11-2, 7-0 in the ACC. And I'm just telling you, they're quietly trending towards another number one seed and another serious run towards a potential NCAA tournament, uh, uh, you know, Final Four, Elite Eight type, type deal. A few weeks ago, I think they kind of put everybody on notice. They beat Clemson by 35 at Clemson. But the game that stood out to me was Monday night, Big Monday. They played Syracuse and won convincingly, beating them by 23 at home. But it wasn't just that they beat them, but it harkened back to something that happened at Clemson. Clemson, they score 85 points. And then Syracuse, they score 81. And that is why Virginia has my attention. Because it's one thing to just grind out a bunch of 64, 62 wins, 58, 57 wins. But at a certain point, you got to be able to win multiple ways in the NCAA tournament. And this Virginia team now is scoring enough where I believe that they will be able to win multiple ways when it matters most, not only in the ACC against Florida State, North Carolina, Louisville, but also in the NCAA tournament when they start to play those elite teams, the teams that you know they're going to have to go through, whether it is Baylor, maybe Gonzaga for a second time. They just got crushed by Gonzaga a few weeks ago. Um, Villanova, Michigan, whatever. And the reason that the offense has picked up is because of two specific players. And I want to talk about them very quickly. And I'm not going to spend a ton of time breaking down Virginia's depth chart, but I think it's important here. The two guys that you need to know are Sam Hauser and Trey Murphy. They're both transfers. Sam Hauser is a transfer from Marquette who sat out last season. He actually averaged 15 per game at Marquette two years ago, sat out last year, tried to get a waiver, couldn't. And then Trey Murphy's a really interesting story. He came in this year. He was going to redshirt. It was assumed he was going to redshirt. They weren't even going to put in a waiver for him. And then when the NCAA basically said everybody can play, uh, right before that, Virginia put in a waiver, and they went ahead and got him eligible. And those two guys are the difference. Because you look at last year's Virginia team, they were really good down the stretch, if you remember. Uh, but statistically, they just did, they couldn't score enough to win games the way that you need to. They finished last season, check this out, averaging 57 points per game last season. As I said, the last couple games, they have scored 80 plus in three of the last four and are averaging 73 per game. That is 16 points more than they were averaging last season. So kind of incredible. And it's to the credit of these two guys, Sam Hauser and Trey Murphy. They're both three-point makers. They're both floor spacers. And I thought it was really on display against Syracuse where they were just essentially lights out against the Qs. Uh, Trey Murphy went four for 10 from three. Sam Hauser, seven for 13. So the two of them essentially made 11 three-pointers and accounted for 33 points just from behind the arc. 
And they're just a complete difference maker. And I think when you factor in how good those two make the offense with the guys that they've had before, Kihei Clark, you remember him from the Final Four National Championship run. He's still the point guard, still a great floor setter, uh, uh, table setter, whatever you want to call it. And Jay Huff, the big guy who's literally been there for at least 15 years. Everybody talks about how John Petty's been at Alabama forever. Jay Huff literally uh, played with Ralph Sampson. I'm pretty sure it was Ralph Sampson's backup at Virginia. But Virginia's playing really, really well. Um, and also, very quickly, I do want to give a little bit of credit uh, to North Carolina. North Carolina, I thought, was really, really, really struggling about two, three, four weeks ago. But you look at what they've done. They've now won six of their last seven. Um, and I think the big thing that I've noticed personally they're starting to get really good guard play. They're starting to get really, really, really good guard play um, because early in the season, what North Carolina was essentially about, they had the bigs down low, right? They had Dayron Sharp, the big freshman, Armando Baycott, Garrison Brooks, but they just weren't making threes and they were turning the ball over way too much. Now, I'm not calling them uh, Virginia, who I, I believe actually, I think Villanova and Virginia lead the country in fewest turnovers, but North Carolina is getting better. First of all, their freshman star that they've been counting on in the backcourt, Caleb Love, has been playing better. Uh, he, The three games prior to Tuesday night's win over Pitt, he had been averaging 16 points per game in those three games. Uh, he's seen his points per game average go up from about nine points per game about two, two and a half, three weeks ago to almost 11 points per game now. Also had just one turnover on Tuesday night versus Pitt. The three-point shooting still isn't great. And so because of that, like, look, I'm not ready to call North Carolina uh, an ACC title favorite or anything like that. But again, two, three weeks ago, we were lumping in North Carolina and their struggles with Duke and Kentucky. And now I think they've started to separate themselves. But those are the stories in the ACC. I also think Florida State's really interesting. We'll get to them at some point. I'm efforting Leonard Hamilton to get on this podcast, but I really am hoping uh, to talk about them more, but those are really, I believe, the big stories in the ACC. All right, last little basketball topic, and then we will get to some football. Uh, I know it's the college football offseason, but there's something incredible going on at Bama that I think is absolutely worthy of talking about. But let's stick with basketball right now, and let's stick with a conference that we really don't talk all that much about, and that's the Pac-12. We don't talk about the Pac-12 because they're completely irrelevant, and they're completely irrelevant because their commissioner is uh, Larry Curley and Mo. I don't know which one, but he's one of them. Uh, that's, of course, Larry Scott, who resigned last week. I, I guess his contract wasn't renewed, but the point is the conference has fallen to essential, essential irrelevancy under Larry Scott. We barely talk about the Pac-12, and I, I, I mean, I'm not going to force Pac-12 conversations, right? And so because of it, we barely touch on the conference, whether it's football season or basketball season, but there is something going on that I do think is worth talking about. And I do want to discuss very briefly, and that is the Arizona Wildcats. And I know that they're kind of out of the picture because they're not in the NCAA tournament this year, but I think they're actually one of the best stories in college basketball right now, sitting at 12 and three overall, six and three in the Pac-12. Uh, I would argue they're maybe the second best team in the Pac-12 behind UCLA. And they're coming off a season sweep of their in-state rival in the last week. Arizona State was a team that a lot of people thought could be a Sweet 16 Elite Eight Final Four team. Arizona just beat them twice, beat them in Tempe on Thursday, return game on Monday, destroyed them in Tucson. 
87, 80 to 67, excuse me, the final score wasn't as close as it would indicate. But I bring all this up to say that it's 12 and three overall. Arizona is, in fact, I believe, one of the 25 best teams in college basketball. And I think they're one of the better stories in college basketball. And I do think it's credit to a man that nobody ever wants to ever give credit to. And that's Sean Miller. And before we go forward, I, I, I know I have to do the caveat. And that's very simply, if you don't like Sean Miller, I get it. There are major NCAA rules violations that are accused of happening under his watch. Whether he knew it or not, he has to be held responsible in the same way that Rick Pitino had to be held responsible at Louisville. Bill Self potentially has to be held responsible at Kansas. Will Wade has to be held responsible at LSU. Will Wade was accused of more directly. But the bottom line remains, if you're not an Arizona fan, I get why you don't like Sean Miller. I would also say I get why why some of the current situation that they're in, one, not being eligible for the NCAA tournament, but two, not having a traditional roster that looks like an Arizona basketball roster. I get that part of it is on Sean Miller. If these accusations don't happen, he's probably got a more traditionally looking Arizona roster. Um, and they're, they're certainly in, in a position to make an NCAA tournament. But at the same time, as I always say, I got to do the show tonight. I got to do the show based on what I know. I don't know what Sean Miller's future is three, four, five years down the road, but I actually think he's doing an incredible job coaching this team. I think he's done an incredible job revamping this roster. And I think this proves uh, it kills a narrative that I believe has been in play for three, four, five years now. And that's that quote unquote, Sean Miller's an overrated coach. And so let's get into it. And really what I, I want to do is kind of talk about how, how this all happened, because the reason that there were no expectations for Arizona coming into this season weren't, wasn't because they were um, b because they were banned from the NCAA tournament, because that didn't happen until a week or two ago, maybe I guess three or four weeks now. Uh, but there was no reason to, to think very much of them because this did not look like a typical Arizona roster, right? Under normal circumstances, Arizona recruits maybe not quite at the level of Kentucky or Duke, but right a step below that. And when you look at this roster, there is no reason to think that this team should be this good. It's a roster full of transfers, international players, and freshmen, many of them not very hyped, and most of them certainly inexperienced. Of their top six scorers on this year's team, only one of them actually played at Arizona last year, and that was Jamal Baker, who is hurt and out for the season. The rest of them, we have a sit-out transfer, a grad transfer, and two sit-out transfers, excuse me, a grad transfer, and two freshmen, and you kind of just throw them all together in a pot, and Sean Miller's making it work. I'd add, this is a credit to him that he has completely flipped this roster and done it at a time where he cannot recruit the traditional players that he recruits. I just mentioned it a minute ago. Uh, this is a place that usually has McDonald's All-Americans up and down the roster. Um, even last year, you're talking about two high school McDonald's All-American one-and-done players in Josh Green and Nico Mannion, and a third player, Zeke Naji, who was one-and-done, even if he wasn't a quote-unquote McDonald's All-American. So this is, I don't want to say the least talented roster, but it is not the typical roster that Arizona normally has. Um, and first of all, part of coaching is adjusting on the fly. Sean Miller has done that recruiting-wise, right? Uh, James Akinjo. Biggie's freshman of the year a few years ago, not happy at Georgetown, transfers back west, ends up at Arizona. Jamal Baker ends up at uh, what starts at Kentucky, doesn't work out, ends up at Arizona. Jordan Brown starts his career with Eric Musselman at Nevada. Eric Musselman leaves, ends up at Arizona. You got a grad transfer named Terrell Brown. You got international players that were largely overlooked otherwise. Ben Matherin, who's averaging 12 points per game this year as a freshman. He's a little banged up right now, went on a Monday's game. He's from Canada. 
Uh, Azulis Tubulus, favorite of Bill Walton, by the way, averaging 11 and a half and six and a half was a guy from Lithuania that the Arizona staff, I'm telling you, identified early as a player that they believe he would have been a top 25, top 30 player in America, McDonald's All-American caliber player had he been here. But a lot of people just didn't know about him or know that he was interested in playing college basketball until Arizona went knocking on their door. So first of all, part of good coaching is being able to identify talent, being able to develop talent, being able to develop a team on a fly. And I think Sean Miller's done an incredible job of that this year, especially, by the way, in an offseason where there's fewer practices, where players are getting to campus late. One of the best recruits, by the way, uh, still essentially has not played. His name is Kirk Krissa. The NCAA had some uh, uh, legal uh, uh, whatever with him, not saying more rules are broken. I'm just saying there was a, a legal or there was an NCAA issue with him. And so he hasn't even had a full roster this year, certainly hasn't had a full roster since Jamal Baker got hurt and he keeps winning. But beyond that, what I would also say about Sean Miller is that I think this speaks to the narrative that I have been trying to squash with years for this guy. You want to accuse him of stuff or you want to say he is accused of stuff and he isn't deserving of your acknowledgement, that's fine. You want to say that you're just not going to like him, you're not going to root for Arizona, that's fine. But I've never believed this narrative that he is not a good basketball coach. And what's the narrative that he's not a good basketball coach? Because he never made a Final Four? You know how hard it is to make a Final Four? You know, don't let, um, don't let, uh, uh, you know, John Calipari making four and six years or whatever it was fool you. It's not easy to make a final four. Indiana's been to one in the last 25 years. Indiana's one of the best programs in college basketball. Um, uh, you know, Rick Barnes has been a head coach in college basketball for 30 years. I love Rick Barnes. He's been to one final four. On the flip side, there's plenty of bad coaches that have been to a final four. Tom Crean's been to a final four. Kevin Ollie's won a freaking national championship. I'm a UConn guy. Kevin Ollie has to be the worst coach to ever win a national championship. So this idea that you make a final four, it somehow justifies you as a good coach. And if you can't make one, you're not a good coach is ridiculous. And oh, by the way, Sean Miller has been right on the doorstep three or four times now, just since he's been to Arizona, he's been to three elite eights. 2011 got knocked out by Kemba Walker. Guess what? Everybody got knocked out by Kemba Walker that year. 2014, a game that I was at, they lose to Wisconsin by one in overtime. Following year, they lose to Wisconsin uh, in the Elite Eight. So you mean to tell me if they had made one more basket or gotten one more defensive stop against Wisconsin in 2014 and they go to the Final Four, all of a sudden Arizona's uh, or Sean Miller's a good coach? But because they didn't get that stop, he's a bad coach? Give me a break. On top of that, he went to an Elite Eight uh, at Xavier. He went to a Sweet 16 at Xavier. He went to two more Sweet 16s at Arizona. So we're talking about, in his career, four Elite Eights, seven Sweet 16s. And this guy can't coach? Give me a break. But like I said, this is probably his best coaching job that he's done just based on all of the circumstances. An entirely new roster, non-traditional roster, international players, grad transfers, we, you know, weird off season, uh, limited practice time, by the way, and I'm not even being sarcastic when I say this, some of his players, English isn't their first language. So I just want to take a moment and acknowledge what he has done, appreciate what he has done, because I think it's one of the best stories in college basketball. There's only going to be one team at the end of the year that hoists that trophy up. It's obviously not going to be Arizona, but we have to acknowledge other teams and other programs that are playing well, even if they're not going to get to the Final Four, win a national championship, or in the case of Arizona, even attempt to compete for it. And then what I would add is don't blame Arizona's current players uh, for what their past players, assistant coaches, and maybe their head coach has done. 
None of the players in this program were even in the program when any of this started. And frankly, I find them to be about the most likable group of players ever. By the way, I don't think it's a coincidence that they're playing so well for Sean Miller. Sean Miller's a tough coach to play for. And this is an egoless, uh, attitudeless group that is willing to take hard coaching, that isn't a bunch of pampered prima donna McDonald's All-Americans, one and done, I'm headed for the NBA, I don't have to listen to you. They just play hard, they take to coaching, they seem likable, they seem to like each other. And so I'm just saying, you don't have to like Sean Miller, but I respect what he's done. I believe that the sign of a good coach is to have your team one in contention every year, which he has done essentially every year since he's gotten to Arizona. As I said, just at Arizona, three, three elite eights, five Sweet 16s, five Pac-10 and Pac-12 regular season championships. Uh, and two, it's the ability to just on a, adjust on the fly, which is exactly what he has done this season. You don't want to like Sean Miller, fine, but I think they're one of the best stories in college basketball. I enjoy watching them. I'm excited to watch them going forward. All right, so we have officially hit the college football offseason, and uh, yeah, not all that much to talk about. Obviously, look, I know Tennessee is still looking for a new head coach. I've talked about it extensively on this channel. There's some odds and ends stuff, but it really is a pretty slow time of the year. With that said, there is something going on at Alabama right now that I think absolutely needs to be covered, and that is this. Nick Saban has lost a couple of elite assistant coaches like he always does every single year. That's part of being on top. That's part of being a team that's in contention for a national championship every year. You're always going to lose good assistants. But it's who he replaced them with, which has piqued my interest. Not sure if you saw this, but with Steve Sarkeesian gone and taking Kyle Flood with him as his offensive line coach to Texas, here is who Nick Saban has replaced those two with. Bill O'Brien was named the offensive coordinator and quarterbacks coach to replace Steve Sarkeesian last week. And on Monday, Doug Marone, the former Jacksonville Jaguars, Buffalo Bills head coach, was named the offensive line coach to replace Kyle Flood. So in case you're not paying attention, and for those scoring at home, Nick Saban had two marquee staff openings on his coaching staff, and here is who he replaced them with. Two guys who were NFL head coaches last season. I got to tell you, among the most insane, incredible things that Nick Saban has done over the course of his time at Alabama, I think this has to be right near the top, and nobody is talking about it. So let's break it down a little bit, and let me start by saying this. I do think that Nick Saban, one of his great gifts is his ability to identify, develop, and coach his own coaches. And what do I mean by that? I think the single thing that Nick Saban doesn't get enough credit for is the fact that his coaching staff is in constant turnover, right? We give him credit for the recruiting. We give him credit for the player development. We give him credit for the actual on-the-field coaching. But what's so incredible is year in and year out, he is essentially replacing his staff hand over fist. Think about Clemson. This is no disrespect to Dabo Sweeney. This is no disrespect to what they've built. I love Dabo Sweeney. But Tony Elliott has been there forever as the primary play caller. Brent Venables has been there forever as the defensive coordinator. There is essentially no staff turnover at Clemson as opposed to Alabama where every single year somebody is leaving. Kirby Smart left in 2015 to go to Georgia. Lane Kiffin left in 2016 to go to uh, Florida Atlantic and now is at Ole Miss. 
He's lost Jeremy Pruitt as the head coach of Tennessee. He has lost uh, Mike Loxley as the head coach at Maryland. He has now lost Steve Sarkeesian. And not only does he lose these guys as coordinators to become head coaches every single year, but those guys generally bring two, three, four guys from Alabama with them to start things up at the next place. Mel Tucker went to Georgia with Kirby Smart. Um, Kyle Flood has obviously gone with Steve Sarkeesian to Texas. Jeff Banks has gone to, uh, with Steve Sarkeesian to Texas. And so when you look at Nick Saban, that may be, I think, his single most underrated strength is figuring out, okay, who am I probably going to lose this offseason, likely as a coordinator? And how do I replace them with the best possible candidate? And I think what Saban has done in this category is incredible. And specifically, I know we joke a lot about the Nick Saban coaching rehabilitation process, but I think it's an incredibly, uh, I don't know if productive is the right word, but just this incredibly productive, uh, successful thing that he has done that everybody kind of mocks, but it's really kind of incredible. Essentially what Nick Saban is, says is, hey, look, it didn't work out with you at the last place, whether it's Lane Kiffin because of off the field and on the field, whether it's because of Steve Sarkeesian, whether it's uh, guys that have just gotten fired like Bill O'Brien, Doug Marone, whatever. But what he basically says is, look, come here. I'm not going to let you do media. I want you to focus 100% on football. I want you to focus 100% on making my players better and recruiting, focus on coaching, and you get out of here, I will get you another head coaching job because that's what I've done for Steve Sarkeesian, Lane Kiffin, Mike Loxley, on and on and on and on and on. And so it is one of the most impressive things. And I think this might be the most impressive offseason of it. Whereas I said a minute ago, he got two guys who were NFL head coaches last year to come to Alabama and be coaches for 2021. And I know a lot of people are going to say, well, you know, they, they were failed NFL head coaches. Yeah, and they were still NFL head coaches. There were only 32 of them last year, and two of them are now position coaches working under Nick Saban. And I would also say that when you actually look at their resumes, when you actually break down what they've done in terms of X's and O's on the field in football, they've actually been pretty good. Now, have they had blunders in other places? Have they not been great maybe with the media? Has Bill O'Brien not been great as a GM front office player personnel decision maker? Yeah, I would say that's factually correct. I would say I would not have traded DeAndre Hopkins if I was him. But guess what? You can't trade people in college football. And even if you could, Nick Saban has final say on everybody that comes in his program. So it's really not a factor. So all you're doing is getting two extremely smart, experienced football minds that are now coming into the program. Starting with Bill O'Brien, I think it goes back to what I just said a minute ago. Everyone's so focused. Oh, he just got fired. Yeah, but look at his resume. He was actually a really good NFL head coach that was undermined by himself as the GM and decision maker of the organization. He was a guy that in his last five full years as an NFL head coach, won four division titles. And one of those seasons that no, the one season that he didn't win it, Deshaun Watson got hurt. And that is why he did not win that division title. I would add on top of that before Deshaun Watson got there, you know who he won the AFC, uh, I guess it would be the AFC South with, you know, who he won the AFC South with, he won it with Tom Savage as his quarterback, Brock Osweiler as his quarterback, Matt Schaub as his quarterback. Uh, talk about doing more with less. It doesn't get much less in the NFL than Tom Savage and Brock Osweiler. 
Oh, by the way, when he got Deshaun Watson and had real pieces around him, they went 11, 10 and 6 and 11 and 5 in 2018 and 2019, 21 wins, 10 and a half wins a season. Not that bad. Hate to say it. Wish he hadn't traded DeAndre Hopkins. If he hadn't, he'd probably still be an NFL head coach today. But you're talking about a guy that can develop offenses, that can develop quarterbacks, that can develop winning successful football teams. And now he is coming to Alabama where he can focus solely on the offense. And on top of that is coming to a place where he's just going to flat out have more talent than everybody else that he plays, except for one or two or three nights a year, if you include the college football playoff. Uh, and so you talk about a guy that, again, I didn't even mention Penn State, but had success at Penn State and had success with the Houston Texans running an entire football team from player personnel down to coaching, down to, to quarterback play, down to everything. Now he just gets to focus on on building an offense and coaching quarterbacks. I think he's going to be incredible. The crazy thing about it is, though, I actually am more impressed with the Doug Marone coaching decision where Doug Marone has now come in to be an offensive line coach, a position coach, not even a, not even a coordinator, not even an associate head coach. We're talking about a position coach that was an NFL head coach just a few weeks ago. Speaking of Marone, I think when you look at his track record, it's impeccable and it's important for this time at Alabama. Remember, Alabama's losing two All-American caliber offensive linemen and Landon Dickerson at center, Alex Leatherwood at offensive tackle. And so now you're bringing in a guy that at one point in his career was considered one of the best offensive line coaches in college football or in, in football in general, excuse me, specifically when he was working under Sean Payton with the New Orleans Saints. He's a guy who played the position you know, positions, whatever, you get the point. I know O-line is more than one position, but he played the position. He coached the position. His teams have always been rugged and physical at the point of attack in the line of scrimmage. And now he's coming back down to the college level where, oh, by the way, he's another guy that had a ton of success as a head coach. First of all, with the Jacksonville Jaguars, let's just remember, he took the Jacksonville Jaguars to the AFC championship game. You can talk about what's happened since. You talk about being replaced by Urban Meyer. Jacksonville Jaguars AFC championship game. Say that out loud. Just think about that. Okay. On top of that, he was actually pretty good at Syracuse as well. It's easy to forget this now, but when he was at Syracuse, how about this first stat since 2005. So the last 16 years, essentially, they have made four bowl games in the last 16 years, four bowl games. Two of them were when Doug Marone was the head coach and one of them was the year right after Doug Marone left, and it was basically his whole team and all his players. That's it. Other than that, one bowl game a year or two ago, and they've stunk otherwise. Syracuse's best year since Donovan McNabb left or when Doug Marone was a head coach. And so I love these hires because – and by the way, we got all offseason to break down the X's and O's of it, and I'll add I'm not really an X's and O's guy anyway. That's not really my strong suit. And so because of it, I would add – that outside of the X's and O's stuff, there's two reasons that I love these two hires. First of all, the one thing I give Nick Saban credit for, even at his advanced age, he likes to hire smart people, let them coach and learn from them. You can criticize Lane Kiffin for a lot of things. You can talk about the, the, the butt chewings and everything that happened. But Nick Saban knew he needed Lane Kiffin. He handed the offense to Lane Kiffin and Lane Kiffin delivered. Same with Mike Lotsey, same with Steve Sarkeesian. And now it's Bill O'Brien's turn. And I like the fact that you now, Nick Saban, one of the smartest football minds in the history of the sport, is now bringing in two former NFL head coaches 
to help him in that locker room, in the game plan room, all that stuff. You don't think it's going to make Alabama a better football team, a smarter football team, a more prepared football team to have two guys with that kind of experience coming into your building and your organization? Because I think so. I would add on top of that. How about this? The fact that it continues this pipeline and belief that Alabama is an NFL factory. Now, look, to be clear, Alabama didn't need these guys to prove that. But it certainly doesn't hurt, right? Because I think we're now at a point, we're at a kind of an interesting point in college football where Alabama isn't really recruiting against Tennessee and Florida and Auburn. They're recruiting essentially against Ohio State, maybe Georgia and Clemson. And they're recruiting the best of the best from across the country. They've crushed it in Texas the last few years. They've crushed it in California, Najee Harris, other guys like that. And the best players in the country no longer, it's not about staying close to home. It's about going, where can I get to, to the NFL the fastest and have an NFL-type program to work in? Essentially, I want to be coached like I'm an NFL player. I want to train like I'm an NFL player. I want to eat like I'm an NFL player. Alabama, Clemson, and Ohio State, there's no doubt that those three programs do that better than anybody else. Well, what way to take it to the next level and to tell the next group of signees, oh, by the way, you want an NFL system? We just signed two former NFL head coaches to our coaching staff, not former assistants, not guys that were in the league and got a cup of coffee 10 years ago. Two NFL head coaches are now assistants. Like you're an offensive lineman. Forget even dealing with Saban. You're going to be coached every day by a former NFL head coach. Quarterback, Saban, he's not even going to talk to you. He's going to put his faith in Bill O'Brien for as long as he's there. And he's going to let Bill O'Brien, a former NFL head coach, Deshaun Watson's former coach, coach you up. So to me, this is one of the most underrated storylines that we've had in this college football offseason. Nick Saban continues to evolve and change and adapt and, frankly, outsmart the rest of college football. Everybody else is arguing over this guy, that guy. Nick Saban just went and plucked two former NFL head coaches. And the crazy thing is, you know what? They're not going to be there very long. They're going to have success next year, and they're going to get another opportunity somewhere else. But in the meantime, Alabama is going to be really well coached and the next guy is going to be in line to take their place when they go. But I love this move and I love what Nick Saban has done. This guy is playing chess when the rest of college football is playing. All right, so I think that's it for today's Aaron Torres Sports Podcast. A loaded show. Uh, and again, last time, I, I, don't, I don't feel as though I need to keep apologizing, but I want to. Um, I apologize for the sound quality. I don't know what's going on, but, uh, you know, I really do appreciate you guys bearing with me as I try to get through this. Uh, hopefully I have my new equipment by Thursday's episode. If not, we will continue to make do, but I genuinely appreciate you guys listening and doing everything that you do to support this show. Before we get out of here, I want to remind you guys, please make sure that you're subscribed. iTunes, the Podcast Addict app. If you have an Android, the Podcast Addict app is the way to go. Podbean, Spotify, TuneIn Radio, wherever you listen to podcasts, make sure you're subscribed. Make sure to rate and review the show. Uh, give us quick five stars. Let us know what you like. Uh, follow on social media at Aaron underscore Torres on Twitter, at Aaron Torres Pod on Instagram. Uh, Aaron Torres Podcast Questions at gmail.com. Aaron Torres Podcast Questions at gmail.com. That is all for today's show. Shout out to Tori Craig. Shout out to Rachel, who hates my voice. I will be back on Thursday with 
hopefully new radio equipment, new recording equipment, and a big NFL guest. I will see you then, party people. Have a good night.